Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. When I've lost my direction, you're the compass for my way. You're the fire at night when nights are long and cold. In the sadness, you are the laughter that shatters all my fears when I'm all alone. Your hand is there to hold. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. You are why I find pleasure in the simple things in life you're the music in the meadows and the streams the voices of the children my family and my home you're the source and finish of my highest dream oh, oh Jesus you're the center of my joy all that's good and perfect comes from you You're the heart of my contentment. You're the hope for all I do. Jesus, you are the center of my joy. Jesus, you are the center of my joy, Jesus, you are the center of my joy, Jesus, you're the center of 
my joy of my joy Amen let's let's open in a word of prayer Father Remind us of where our joy truly lies. So often we spend our, our time and our efforts seeking this world's fleeting happiness instead of claiming the lasting joy that only comes from you. Save us, Lord, from seeking anything for our contentment, anything outside of you. We, we want only to seek your work, your will, your gifts, your attributes, Lord, on our own, we can find no lasting joy. We find no stability for this journey, but in you, we find everything. We find a joy that stands the test of time and a peace that cannot be shaken by the storms of this life. Thank you for that truth, Father. Open our hearts now as we look into your word. Give us a desire to hunger after you, to stay in the center of your will, and to find that unspeakable joy. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I love that song, the center of my joy. Of all, of all the myriad of uh, awards Bill and Gloria Gaither have received for their hundreds of songs and, and albums and projects over the half century, Gloria says this, she says, the one award in our trophy case that is to me among the most treasured is the stellar award given for the Black Gospel Song of the Year for Jesus, You're the Center of My Joy, which she says we wrote with Richard Smallwood, a fine musician and songwriter. The song itself began for Bill one day in Nashville when he and Richard got together to write some music. And Gloria says, for me it began when Bill handed me a tape and said, can you write some lyrics to this melody? She says, I listened to the melody for the verse, and I thought of all that's good and perfect in our lives, the things worth dying and living to keep. They're the simple things, the gentle things, yet the things that seem to be threatened the most when we get our priorities out of order. As I wrote, she continues, and considered life as God had ordered it in his word and by the teaching and example of Jesus, I had to conclude that indeed all that God puts in our lives is always whole, perfect, and good. It's what we do to distort God's gifts that so often brings pain, dissatisfaction, unrest, bitterness, and a hunger that gnaws at our souls. Relationships that are honest, pure, enriching, and true, she says, are the greatest of all treasures we can know in this life. But our fallen nature gets in the way and destroys the very things we need and treasure so much. Only relationships redeemed by grace can dare to love, trust, forgive, accept, and give the benefit of the doubt. Go the second mile and relinquish paralyzing control. Only the cross can pry loose the strangling grip of selfishness from the neck of our relationships and let the breath of God flow into the hidden interiors of our marriages, our home lives, and our friendships. In this world, it's easy to lose our focus, break loose from our moorings, be sidetracked by the artificial trappings of our culture, 
But God, she says, always offers a way back to the center of where joy lives. There have been many times when even trying to do God's work, we have let other things take center stage in our lives. And often others would call those things ministry. But Jesus must be the joy center. When he is, we get joy from everything that is good. When he's not the center of our joy, we get jaded, we become cynical, even about God things. And our joy in everything drains away. That's a great writing. It's a great truth. And it's so true, isn't it? Only in Christ can we find true, pure, and lasting joy. Only when we're focused on Him can we even find joy in the blessings that come from His hand. When we're focused on the, the giver of the gifts. We're going to talk about joy today. And we often spend time differentiating between joy and happiness. Right? We know happiness well. Give a kid a piece of candy, you will see unbridled happiness. <laughs> the same is true of us. We can find happiness quite easily, but we can't hold on to it. We find happiness in experiences, in things, in environment, in possessions. It's easy to find happiness, but it's always short-lived, and then we're on to the next quest for the next happiness. Joy is different. Joy is unwavering. Joy is lasting. Joy is internal. It's not situational. It isn't impacted by our environment, our circumstances. There's joy in knowing Christ. There's joy in following hard after Him. There's joy in serving Him. I think we all understand the concept of joy and who the source of joy is. We're not going to talk about that today. Today we're going to focus on what stands in the way of our joy. The joy killers. The thieves of joy. The things that rob us of the joy that we're meant to have. We're all familiar with the, the fruits of the Spirit that Paul wrote about to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 5. And if you've attended Jim's scripture memorization class, you should have these fruits etched into your minds and hearts. Say them with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self and did you catch the order? Joy comes right after love. It's that important in our Christian lives. But before Paul wrote about the fruits of the Spirit and joy in chapter 5, he asked a very penetrating question one chapter previous. Galatians chapter 4, verse 15. He asks this, he says, What has happened to your joy and blessing? I tell you, the place was so thick with love that if it were possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and handed them to me. That's a question that needs asking today in the church. What happened to all my joy. What happened to all your joy? It's a question we have to ask. And the answer is almost always one of these three joy killers that we're going to explore today. Our first joy killer, unmet expectations. You ever feel like you're just going through some joyless routine in life, and you find yourself constantly grumbling and complaining about 
everyone and everything around you. Well, it might not just be a bad day. The reality may be that there's a deep-seated discontentment with how your life is progressing. You had expectations, you had dreams, you had visions of how your life would turn out. And the reality isn't matching your blueprint. I remember building model cars and model planes as a, as a kid. Do kids still do that? I, I don't know. But uh, there was always the beautiful picture on the box. And when I was done, I'd look at the beautiful picture on the box, and then I'd look at my completed work, complete with glue-smudged fingerprints and crooked decals and a bunch of leftover parts I didn't think were needed. <laughs> and the reality never matched the blueprint. And what happens? Well, we get discontented. Our marriage isn't what we imagined it would be. Our kids aren't turning out the way we thought they would. Our lives aren't matching the expectations we see on Facebook. Our job isn't fulfilling us in the way that we dreamed it would. And the reality doesn't match the picture in our head, the blueprint. The question is, whose blueprint was it? We, we tend to have a lengthy, lengthy dossier of, of expectations, don't we? Historian Daniel Borston suggests that society, namely American society, suffers from all too extravagant expectations. And in his much-quoted book, The Image, Borston makes this observation of society, and it's a good one. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and yet charitable, powerful and merciful, active and yet reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, <laughs> to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. Unmet expectations. Our own expectations lead only to discontentment, a very successful and efficient killer of joy. And listen to how Paul deals with it. Listen to how Paul discovered the secret of being content with what God had given him. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12, he says this, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I, I find it interesting to note that Paul says contentment is a secret. There's a mystery about it. He had to learn how to live with unmet expectations. It's not natural for us. It's not in our nature. We must learn to live with plenty or with little. Contentment doesn't come 
when we have everything we want, but when we want everything we have. The story is told about a pilot who always looked down intently on a certain valley in the Appalachians when his plane passed by. And one day his co-pilot asked him, what's so interesting about that spot? You're always so fixated on it when we fly over. The pilot replied, see that stream down there? Well, when I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and fish. And every time an airplane flew over, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now I look down and wish I were fishing. <laughs> it's always tempting to think that if we just had that dream, if we just had a little more, then everything would be fine. Everything would turn out all right. Then we will be joyful. We'll be contented. But contentment can't be achieved by increasing possessions or chasing dreams. Nothing will ever be enough. The key, the secret, as Paul says, is to learn to be satisfied with Christ. With everything that God has portioned for us. Contentment comes when we stop thinking that this life is all there is. Our brother Dave gave a great example. He had a long rope a Monday night. He said, this is, our, this is eternity. This is our life. And here on earth is but a small portion of it. We have to remember, how are we living that? We have to keep eternity in view. Contentment begins when we realize this life is not the end. See, we have some concept in our head, get all you can while you can before the buzzer sounds. This life is a small portion. It's a holding room. We're in the lobby before we go and enter into the great house of God. Live for him. Live this life for him. Live this short while for him. Spend this short time in pursuit of his will and his kingdom. Instead of chasing dreams, instead of just one more thing, just one more possession, you know, we should ask ourselves this singular question. If I could get my dream, if I could achieve my goal outside of God's will, would I want it? And the answer should be a resounding no. Anything outside of God's will, no matter how wonderful we think it may be, no matter how much we may want it, will turn into a nightmare in our lives. And how often we entangle ourselves in a web of consequences that keep us from fulfilling our potential and enjoying God's best for us, all because we're chasing some notion in our heads of what we think we really want. Some dream we think will we'll do it. We will never find joy if we define our own terms for joy. You know, I will have joy in my life if I have A, B, C, and D, and no E. Well, God's will for us might be a heavy helping of E. And no A, B, C, or D. And we shudder at the thought, but what we don't realize is that he also gives us X, Y, and Z, things we didn't even know we wanted or needed. And in the sum of it all, we find joy. We find true and lasting joy. And that's what it means when we say he's blessed us beyond our dreams. Our dreams are small potatoes compared to his goal and his plans for us. 
He's blessed us beyond our dreams. Our choice would never yield the same joy as his choice. So what do we do? What do we do with our expectations when we're filled with discontentment? We're consumed with dissatisfaction at their lack of fulfillment. Well, we take our expectations and we lay them at the foot of the cross. We come before God and we give him our desires. We give him our dreams. We give him our wills. We exchange wills with God. Bill McDonald, a, a prolific writer, teacher, preacher, and, and a dear friend of this church who went to be with the Lord some 10 years ago would always share this poem by Anna Jane Grannis, which he claimed was his favorite poem in the world. I want my heart so cleared of self that my dear Lord may come and set up his own furnishings and make my heart his home. And since I know what this requires, each morning while it's still, I slip into that secret room and leave with him my will. He always takes it graciously, presenting me with his. I'm ready then to meet the day and any task there is. And this is how my Lord controls my interests and my ills, because we meet at break of day for an exchange of wills. That's it. That's the secret. That's the secret Paul learned an exchange of wills. We give him our will and we take on his. And in so doing, we change our expectations to expectancy. We live in expectance of what God is going to do in our lives. Not, not with any preconceived notions, not with any of our own designs or expectations. We live open to his will for us. Whatever it may be, knowing and trusting that he desires only what's best for us. We lay our wills and our expectations down daily in prayer. And it takes constant prayer to let go of our wills. Are you open to God's will for your life today? Or are you disgruntled because you're still holding on? Your plans didn't align with his plans and you're disgruntled about it. You're, you're dissatisfied about it. Friend, let's always remind our hearts his plans are far better than ours. Amen. One day in heaven, we can ask Oswald Smith all about that. The year was 1920, and the scene was the examining board for selecting missionaries. Standing before the board was a young man named Oswald Smith. One dream dominated this man's heart, his thoughts, his interest. He wanted to be a missionary. Over and over again, he prayed, Lord, I want to go as a missionary for you. Send me out. Open a door of service for me. Now at last, his prayer would be answered. When the examination was over, the board turned to Oswald Smith and rejected him. He didn't meet their qualifications. He failed the tests. Though he was well prepared biblically, there were other issues of health and physical endurance which disqualified him for service. Oswald Smith had set his direction, but now life threw a detour at him. What would he do? Well, as Oswald Smith prayed, God planted another idea in his heart. If he could not go as a missionary, he would build a church which could send out missionaries. 
And that's exactly what he did. Oswald Smith founded and pastored the People's Church in Toronto, Canada, which sent out more missionaries than any other church in the 20th century. And it continues, continues to do so to this day. Oswald Smith placed his dream on God's altar and brought God into the situation. And God transformed his detour into a main thoroughfare of service. His ways are better than ours, aren't they? May we overcome the joy killer of unmet expectations, of discontentment. May our hearts be satisfied not when our expectations are, are met, but when we find ourselves living in the center of His will, open to whatever His plans are for us. That's when we can grasp the true joy He wants us to have. How joyful we will be when we know that we're living right, that we're living right where he wants us and we're doing exactly what he wants us to be doing in his will and making him the center of our thoughts, our focus, and he will become the center of our joy. Amen? Amen. That's our first killer. Unmet expectations. Our second joy killer, unresolved conflict. Our joy evaporates when we allow conflict between ourselves and another person to go on. When someone's offense against us occupies our mental and emotional attention, guess what? There's no room left for, for the Lord. Anger clouds our eyes. It clouds the eyes of our heart, and it obscures our view of God. It drains our joy. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 challenges us not to allow this to happen, not to allow relational ruptures to fester because they cause bitterness. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Love keeps no record of wrongs. If you're still itemizing people's mess-ups, the fruit of joy will be squashed in your life. Paul recognized the link between joy and unity in Philippians 2, verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Unity yields joy. Right relationships yield joy. So what are you holding on to today? What offense? What hurt? Who, who's in your crosshairs today? How many wasted thoughts? How much wasted time? Do you, do you spend time like that itemizing offenses and grudges? Oh, we love grudges, don't we? Revenge. And we pride ourselves on, on, on grudges. Oh, I may forgive, but I'll never forget. And when all is said and done, what did that grudge get us? Where did it lead us? Nowhere. What did it accomplish for us? Nothing. It's a burden. It weighs us down. It's a burden you were never meant to carry. And it's a killer of joy. Friend, let me tell you this. You will never know real joy till you release it. You will never know real joy till you resolve it. Forgive before you're even asked for forgiveness. 
Or better yet, ask for forgiveness for your attitude, for your part, for your words, for your actions. We talked about that at the Bible study Wednesday night. Forgiveness. Life's too short to live with unresolved conflict that eats away at your very core. William H. Walton described it so well as the best description I've ever heard. He said, to carry a grudge is like being stung to death by one bee. Offer forgiveness, and you may just find out that the one you're in conflict with is desperately seeking that forgiveness. There's a, there's a Spanish story of a father and son who had become estranged. The son ran away, and the, and the father set off to find him. He searched for months to no avail. Finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday at noon, 800 Pacos showed up <laughs> looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. It's not worth holding on to. The bitterness, the hurt, the pain of conflict. If there's an unsettled matter in your life, that's consuming your thoughts and your emotions and your peace. It's killing your joy. It's robbing you of the joy that God wants you to have. Address it. Seek peace. Seek resolution. If you've done wrong, seek forgiveness. If you've been wronged, freely offer it. There are countless verses in Scripture urging us to live this way. I don't want to say the Bible harps on it, but the Bible harps on it. It's that critical. It's that important. Listen, listen to some of these. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Mark eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In Colossians 3.13, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Never forget what he's done for us. Can't we do the same for others? Let's be quick to seek forgiveness when we've wronged someone, and let's be as quick to forgive when we've been wronged. That's the greatest recipe for living in harmony with others, living in peace with our brothers and sisters, and not hindering the joy of the Lord that he wants us to experience. Our first joy killer was unmet expectations. Our second, unresolved conflict. Finally, our third and our biggest joy killer. It's the one that's responsible for chasing more joy out of lives than any other. Unconfessed sin. Guilt can gut your joy faster than anything I know. 
and sin can send your joy far, far away. David understood this very well when he attempted to ignore the promptings of the Spirit and cover up his sin. I'm not going to talk about it. Take a look at Psalm 32, 1-5. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We can't live with unconfessed sin and expect to ignore the guilt of our conscience. And we can never find joy living in the prison of guilt. Someone wisely remarked that guilt is like the little red warning light on your dashboard, your car dashboard. Either you stop and deal with it now or you'll end up with a catastrophic breakdown later on. And it's so true. And how do you feel when you're driving around and you see that check engine light? Uh-oh, fearful, nervous, panicking, wondering when you're going to have a breakdown. The same thing happens with our unconfessed sin. If we don't deal with it, if we don't seek forgiveness, we become slaves to guilt. A little boy visiting his grandparents was given his first slingshot. And he practiced and practiced in the woods, and he could never hit his target. He went back to grandma's backyard where he spied her pet duck. On an impulse, he took aim and let it fly. The stone hit, smack, the, the, the duck fell down dead. The boy panicked, desperately he hid the dead duck in the woodpile, only to look up and see his sister watching. <laughs> Sarah had seen it all, but said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sarah, let's wash the dishes. But Sarah said, oh, no, no. Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. <laughs> Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, remember the duck. <laughs> so Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sarah to help me make supper. Sarah smiled and said, no, no, no. It's all taken care of. Johnny wants to do it. And again, she whispered, remember the duck. Johnny stayed while Sarah went fishing. Well, after several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sarah's, he finally couldn't stand it anymore. He confessed to Grandma that he'd killed her duck. I know, Johnny, she said, giving him a hug. I was standing at the window and saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. But I wondered how long you would let Sarah make a slave of you. <laughs> how long will you let sin make you its slave? How long will you live shackled by the guilt of what you've done? Do you think you will ever know joy living that way? Do you think you will ever know joy living in the shadow of sin and in the prison of guilt? 
Friend, there is one who stands ready to forgive and free you. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Acts 3.19, Repent. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Friend, there is a solution to the guilt. There is a remedy for sin. There is freedom from the chains. There is joy to be found. Confess your sin to Christ. Seek His forgiveness. Ask Him to forgive. That's, that's a prayer that He answers immediately and every time. And when we're free from guilt, you know what we find? We're free for joy. There's no greater joy than knowing that your slate has been wiped clean. Your sins have been cast away and forgotten forever. Bask in His forgiveness. He's the only path to joy. The only path. Listen to this assessment. Men throughout history have pursued joy in every avenue imaginable. Some have successfully found it while others have not. And perhaps it's easier to describe where joy cannot be found. Not in unbelief. Voltaire was an infidel of the most pronounced type, and he wrote, I wish I had never been born. Not in pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure, if anyone did. He wrote, the worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Not in money. Jay Gold, the American millionaire, had plenty of that. When dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on this earth. Not in possession. Not in position. Not in fame. Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than his share of all of those. And he wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Not in conquest, not in military glory. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day, and having done so, he wept bitterly in his tent before he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. Where then is real joy found? And the answer is simple. It's found in Christ alone. If you're here today and you're seeking real joy, if you've never sought a relationship with God, that unconfessed sin is the only thing standing in your way. And there's only one remedy. Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary to forgive that sin, to reconcile you to God. He was your substitute and your representative. And he offers you salvation today, forgiveness of sin, a relationship with God, and eternal life in heaven with him. All you need to do is ask. Ask him to forgive your sins and be your savior and receive him in your heart and into your life. It's the first and the most important step to true joy. And dear believer, how, how are you dealing with these joy killers? these thieves of joy, unmet expectations, unresolved conflict, and unconfessed sin? Are you seeking his will 
and open to his plans for your life? Are you quick to resolve conflicts with one another as they arise? And are you bringing your sins to Christ daily and seeking his forgiveness? These three actions are the surest way to fend off the joy killers, to live in joy and to pursue the kingdom of God. You know, so often as Christians, we claim to have a desire to seek the kingdom of God, to live for his kingdom, and then we go about and live with no explicit or deliberate actions toward that end. Paul summed it up so well in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there it is. We don't go about living our lives any which way, as if there's no purpose. If we desire his kingdom, there's a right way to live. We have to live a certain way. We have to live in righteousness without unconfessed sin and in the center of God's will for our lives. We have to live in peace, contented with God's plan for us and at peace with our brothers and sisters. And if we do that, we will then find joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We're going to close with this. As a third century man was anticipating his death, he penned these last words to a dear friend. He said this, It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They're masters of their souls. They have overcome this world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Amen. May we all be able to say that today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to grab hold of the true and lasting joy that you want us to have. Teach us. Teach us how to live, Father. Teach us how to, how to be content with what you have portioned for us. To live seeking your will for our lives and not in stubborn pursuit of our own plans. Teach us, Father, how to live in harmony with one another how to seek forgiveness and offer it freely and liberally and graciously. And Father, help us to come to you with our sins and seek your forgiveness daily. Only then, Lord, can we know joy. Only then can we live lives that are not encumbered and weighed down by discontentment, by guilt, by conflict, and by sin. Free us from these, Lord, and help us to focus our efforts our thoughts, and our desires on Jesus Christ, the center of our joy. Thank you for the gift of your Son. We pray in his precious name. Amen.